Good morning, brothers. Now, last night, I, in my introductory remarks and sort of as I gave the, our rules of engagement, I told you to, if you couldn't say amen, at least look amen, and many of you did that. But I also told you, uh, treat me like your cousin. Don't act like you don't know me. Some of you did that, but others are still a little bit trying to figure me out. So let's, uh, let's practice together. So say, good morning, Cousin Ed. Okay, see how easy that was? So let's just be family here together. I'm grateful to God. And let me rush to say, first of all, I want to thank God for the hospitality of those who have been greeting us, been taking care of us with the food, with the, uh, all of the things that have been put in place to make us comfortable at this conference. Let's give the conference staff a hand. And I would like to invite you to come to Chicago for the Chicago course on preaching. The video doesn't do it justice. There is a collegiality that we foster in that residential program. We have uh, several people, actually my intern, the young man who moved up from Waco, Texas to come live in Rockford as he was going through the Chicago course. He will be graduating here in June. There's as much caught as there is taught. So if you know of any young men, you can take the course uh, full-time, which is what we don't recommend. It'll take you like a year to do that. You would be taking classes on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. We recommend that you take it, it part-time, which takes two years. The first year, you'd be Monday and Tuesday, second year, Thursday and Friday. But what makes it so um, useful and so practical is not only is it cost-efficient, but you're embedded in a local church where you actually get to work out what you've been learning. Um, on the video, it says you work on about 200 passages. It's more like 250 passages. You're going to preach close to 50 times with feedback, but more importantly, it's the small group work where we get together and we tremble before God's word together that is really impactful. So either the Chicago course or if there's a workshop that comes in your area, I invite you to really take advantage of it, or at the very least, go online and take some of the online courses, or there's a lot of free resources on our website that I, I'd invite you to take advantage of, including the podcast, as well as videos, as well as uh, just talks. So take advantage of that, and if you're really interested, I have a QR code that I'll make available, and, or you can see me, you could just scan the QR code, and it will take you to a video and a uh, a very brief process where uh, Jeremy Meeks will get in contact with you and give you more information. Well, last night we started out slow. Let's pick up a little bit of speed. We looked at Genesis chapter 50, and really we were talking about assigned seating, that the, the path to humility starts with recognizing that you're not in the place of God, that he has certain prerogatives based upon his position and those prerogatives include the power to change anything, including getting good outcomes from evil events. And not only that, but the, the good news gets gooder when you think about the fact that his entire purpose is the preservation of people. And not just their preservation, but providing for them. And did you catch it last night at the end of that sort of episode, Joseph talked about not only that he would provide for his brother's progeny, but he spoke tenderly to them, gently to them. Our God is not an impassable God. Our, our Lord doesn't just save us forensically, he saves us passionately. He, he loves us not theoretically, but he actually loves us intensely to such an extent that as he offers forgiveness, he speaks gently to our souls. Have you ever experienced that? 
Have you ever felt the, the weight of guilt and sin and shame? And then not only do you get the assurance from the Word of God that because you've confessed your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness, but doesn't He just speak to your heart gently to let you know that you are His and that He will provide? That was last night. Let's open up our Bibles to another part of Scripture, Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Let's see if we can dig in today. with some soul music from David, this song of ascent, this traveling music that Spurgeon says is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Psalm 131, I'm going to read it in your hearing. Let's see what the Lord has to say. A song of ascent of David, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a winged child with its mother. Like a winged child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. 2,343 miles due west of here, there is a room that was designed by a man named Hundraj Cabal for Microsoft. It took him two years to design it. They placed it there in Redmond, Washington. <clears throat> and according to the Guinness Book of World Records, it's the quietest place on the planet. The measured noise level is negative 20.3 decibels. Or in other words, 20.3 decibels below the threshold of human hearing. Longest anyone has been able to stay in the room been 55 minutes. Because it's so quiet You hear your own heartbeat. You hear your stomach gurgling. If you turn your head, you hear your joints. It's so quiet that you can't stand to be in there too long because you're too noisy on the inside. Blase Pascal said that mankind's problems boil down to the fact that we're unable to sit in a room by ourselves and be quiet for an hour. Apparently he's right. The most anybody's been able to stay in the quietest room in, on the planet is 55 minutes. Even then, when you come out, you're disoriented because spatial cognition is based upon hearing. It's a quiet place, but a place where not many people dare to go. I pointed out, because you don't have to go to Redmond, Washington, to figure out that we're too noisy on the inside. It shows up in a whole lot of different ways. The diseases of despair that are plaguing this country. Before the pandemic, they were on the rise, but since the pandemic, suicide, substance abuse, alcoholism, diseases of despair are on the rise because we keep trying to find ways to quiet ourselves on the inside because we're too noisy where it counts. When you're noisy on the inside, you do strange things on the outside. 
it hampers your relationships with other people, hinders your intimacy with God, causes you, if you're not careful, to try to self-medicate to calm the noise down. But the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that quiet dependence on God is your safest way home. We're all traveling, but what's your traveling music? Today, as we look at this text, Psalm 131, I believe David is going to help us by showing us some ways to engage soul music that will allow us to make it home safely. We don't know when David wrote this. Was it after Saul and Jonathan died when he was grieving? Was it after that Bathsheba debacle? Was it after that great sin of taking the census? There's no clue or clear indication of the historical context. All we know is that according to the subscription that it's a song of a sense that the people of God found this music useful as they traveled upward to Jerusalem. Whether it was the Levites as they went up the steps or the people on their way to Jerusalem, this apparently is good traveling music. And I say it's good soul music. What is he getting at as he writes this psalm? Let's see, because he starts out by addressing our heart's posture. Do you see this? Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. See, here it is. If humility is the low road to glory, humility starts with the heart's posture. He says, my heart is not lifted up. That's a Hebraic phrase, speaking of this idea of pride. To have one's heart lifted up is to be proud. It's uh, the idea of discounting others because in your estimation, you are lifted up. It is reemphasized in this word, in this phrase, my eyes are not raised too high. Have you ever heard of the English word supercilious? It comes from the Latin word supercilium. It has to do with eyebrows raised. It's literally this idea in Hebrew, in Latin, in English, is the idea of being highbrowed, literally looking down on other people. This text is helping us to quiet our souls down as it relates to taking ourselves so seriously. I hope that you've come to realize that one of the best ways to get God to laugh is to let him see you thinking about yourself. Because part of the noise in our hearts is our preoccupation of how others view us and therefore how we think about ourselves in their minds. And one of the ways that we err, one of the ways that we get off track one of, in this road toward glory, this idea of humility, one of the ways we get off track is by letting our hearts get too lifted up. How do we do that? By comparison, by competing, and then by complaining. Remember the psalmist talks about how we shouldn't fret ourselves 
because of evildoers. And if you really examine that passage in Psalm 37, as well as here, the idea is getting at that sometimes our hearts get lifted up because we compare ourselves with other people, and in our estimation, we come out ahead. Why do we do that? Because we're always comparing our strengths against somebody else's weaknesses. But comparison is not good for the soul. Because it breeds competition. Now, let's be honest. I know there are some pastors in here. Uh, I come from that tradition where there is the actual number of people you serve and then the bragging number. You know, so Baptist circles, hey, Doc, how many people are you looking at? What they mean by that is how many uh, are attending worship on a particular Sunday? And because of this idea of lifted hearts, we have our bragging number, and then there's an actual number, as if whatever the number is, we ought to be trembling because we got to give an account for every soul that is under our charge. And that's why we shouldn't be eager to be teachers because we'll be held to a stricter standard but when your heart is lifted up, you'll always compare. You'll always compete. And if you're not careful, your heart will cause you to complain because somehow or another you think you deserve more than what you have. That's a symptom of a lifted heart. You know, I have a degree and I have this. I've been to the Fellowship in the Gospel Conference. I've read so-and-so's books, and therefore, I ought to have a certain, what? What is it that you think that you ought to have? What has your lifted heart caused you to believe you're missing when in point of fact, let's be honest, can I pause for just a second and get off script? Can we not all be honest? The truth of the matter is that every one of us has more than what we deserve. And that if we got what we did deserve, none of us would be here. Amen. Every one of us has been marked out for God's grace. You live in a country that is not experiencing war. You have running water. You have a roof over your head. And most Christians on this planet can't say that. But if your heart is lifted up, you'll come to the conference and you'll compare yourself with other people. You'll compete in ways that are unhealthy. And if you're not careful, you'll start complaining all because of your heart's posture. He says, my heart is not lifted up. And my eyes are not haughty. In other words, I'm not discounting other people through my arrogance. But then he says, and I don't occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. I don't overestimate myself. I don't occupy or preoccupy myself with things that I cannot explain nor understand. In other words, literally what he's getting at is that my heart's posture is not just an outward perspective, but it's an inward embracing of my own limitations that some stuff I just don't understand. That I don't understand in the pastoral ministry how some people are in places where they seem to be growing and here I'm doing exactly the same thing and nothing seems to be happening. I, I don't understand why some people might uh, be married in a situation and everything seems to be going well and they don't even have a intimate relationship with Christ. But here I'm struggling with my spouse and we're praying together. I don't understand why some people who are not interested in the things of God have children that are obedient and submissive and seem to be successful. But here I have prayed for my child and they seem to be going astray. There are certain things in this life that are too marvelous and beyond the keen of my understanding. But here's part of the problem. Let me just say this in passing. Part of the problem as it relates to this idea 
of overestimating our own capacity is based on the fact that we tend to like to think proverb, if I can, I hope you can understand this terminology. If you can't, just bear with me. Too often we're talking proverb smack to one another when we live in Ecclesiastes worlds. Do, do you understand what, what I mean by that is, we, we've learned just enough scripture to be miserable because we've, taking, we've taken Proverbs as if it's promises, but we've not dealt with the fact that we live in an Ecclesiastes world where the race doesn't all the time go to the swift. The battle doesn't all the time go to the strong, but time and chance is what the scripture actually says in Ecclesiastes overtakes all. And sometimes we're mad at God because we have an underappreciated realization that there's some things you're not going to understand on this side of glory. But here's the good news. You can change your heart's posture. You can level off. You can recalibrate so that your heart is not lifted up, your eyes are not haughty, and you don't get worked up over stuff that you don't understand. And they cannot be explained on this side of glory. Well, how do I do that? I'm glad you asked. Look at the next verse. <laughs> my heart's posture <laughs> is tied into my soul's composure. He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a winged child with his mother, like a winged child is my soul within me. This is very interesting, this terminology that he decides to use, that my soul can mature to the place that it actually gets winged. Now, this idea of weaning is this idea of, uh, well, in the physical sense, when someone is weaned, when a child is weaned, they have learned to manage without something that they've become dependent upon or which they've become excessively fond of. To wean means to learn how to pacify without whining and to expect satisfaction without having it immediately. A weaned child is not a child that does not get hungry. A weaned child is a child that just happens to know now through experience that just because I don't have it right now doesn't mean I ain't gonna get it. A child who's not weaned cries, throws tantrums, is fussy because they have no concept of delayed gratification. But a weaned child will sit on his mother's lap without fussing, without complaining, without whining, because based upon the mother's past track record, the child knows that even if I don't get it when I want it, I know I'm going to get it when I need it. <laughs> the psalmist says, listen, that the best soul music I can have is the music that helps me to calm down and realize that I can go without something which I once was dependent upon. Now, let's work here for a second, my brothers, because the opposite of weaning, if left unattended, is addiction. Because all addiction is a worship disorder. It's when 
you're trying to get something that you think is going to satisfy a need that only God can satisfy, and you can't do without that thing. The problem is, because you think you can't do without it, the more you go after it, the less satisfied you are and the more of it you need. In a room like this, I'm grateful to God that the brother offered the book and that it's available about pornography. Because statistically speaking, someone in this room needs to be weaned off pornography. Someone else might need to be weaned off some type of substance that you're using in order to try to calm down the noise. The good news is you can wean your soul. You can calm your soul when you recognize that our father is also tender like a mother, also satisfying like a mother with her weaned child. This idea of weaning is recognizing, listen carefully, that nearness to the source is enough even if the source is delayed in satisfying my need. Listen to what I'm saying. The, 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 the jump that you have to make, the switch that you have to make in your mind is that I don't have to be anxious because I'm near the source. And because I'm near the source, I don't have to have what I think I need when I think I need it because the source knows better than I do exactly what I need, how I need it, and when I need it. The psalmist says, here's what I've done. I've learned how to calm myself, learned how to calm my soul. My soul is like a winged child in me. In other words, like Paul, the psalmist has learned the art of contentment. Paul, there in Philippians chapter 4, he says, in whatever state I'm in, I've winged my soul. I've learned to be content whether there's abundance or whether, and surplus or whether there's scarcity because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, who supplies me, who's my source. And because of his faithfulness, and this is the heart of the text, all of this, this soul talk and this soul music, up under it is the faithfulness of God. He starts out by talking about, oh Lord, the covenant-keeping God, I am not hearty in my heart. But in the heart of this text, verse 2, where he's talking about all this childhood talk, really, he's getting at this idea that I can trust in God's provision, and because he's near me, I don't have to fret. Because he's proven over time that he's going to supply all my needs. Have you come to the point in your life that you've looked back and you can connect the dots that every juncture of your life, God has done what needed be, to be done when it needed to be done, even if you didn't like his timing. Can I help you out right quick? You don't have good enough timing to be able to tell God what the right time is. See, God is a master musician. And he's always on beat. We're always off rhythm. And if you want your soul to be quieted, you need to get in sync with God's rhythm and recognize that he's never late. He dwells in eternity in a high and lofty place, but also with those who are contrite in spirit. In other words, time is no constriction to him. Even though very often we think, can I be honest, we think that maybe time has passed us by that maybe it's too late. But God is never late because time is a construct that does not apply to him. And because of that, he will supply your need. Come here, Abraham, they ain't listening to me. Abraham said he promised me a child when I was 75, but that child didn't show up till I was just about 100, but wasn't God on time. And didn't God fulfill his promise so that Abraham was the father of many nations? didn't come in Abraham's time, but it was right on time. Because the Bible says at the proper time, he visited 
Sarah, and Sarah conceived, and she bore him a son. We, we, can, we have too many uh, examples throughout Scripture where it seemed that God was not hearing or not listening, but God's people who quietly depend on him find that he's the safest way home. Come here, Hebrew boys, they ain't listening to me. I would, they were thrown in the fiery furnace. In the fiery furnace. It's already too late. They're in the furnace. <laughs> but here's what they said. Our souls are calm within us. We're not going to bow because we know our God is able. And, and didn't he show up in time? Wait, wait a minute. He got in the furnace with them. And the, well, those who had threw them in got burned up. My point is that from the human perspective, it looked like time was up. But in point of fact, God's timing is impeccable. And he brought them out so that they didn't even look or smell like what they had been through. The, the testimonies are too plenteous throughout Scripture that those who learn how to calm themselves and be, listen carefully, and be satisfied with the nearness of God don't have to have what he supplies because he's near. My children have finally figured this out. <laughs> I have three children. Uh, the oldest is a son. The middle child is a daughter. And the youngest is a son. My oldest boy, for whatever reason, he's not a boy. He's a man now. My oldest son, for whatever reason, he even did this recently, he'll just ask for the bare minimum of, of what he actually needs. So, Dad, I need, you know, Dad, can you spot me a, a 20? I need to do this. I'm like, what are you going to do with a 20? You know, I, I, so I'll send him $50 because I know that's what he needs. My daughter, she doesn't really ask for too much. She just expects everything. Because <laughs> that's, you know, that's that daddy-daughter thing, right? <laughs> so she'll just, you know, sort of throw out, you know, I, I got this going on or I got the other thing going on. She doesn't ask for any number. She just lets me know there's something going on, and she knows that I know, you know, and I just reach in my pocket. But my youngest son has figured it out because what he'll do is he knows I love books. So he'll say something, and I, I promise you he's going to do this tomorrow. He, he, my wife just picked him up from college uh, last night, and I promise you he's going to do this tomorrow. He said, Dad, he said, let's go on over to Barnes & Noble and hang out. Wait a minute, and we'll go to Barnes and Nobles, and as long as we're in Barnes and Nobles, he, he knows he doesn't have to ask me for anything. He'll just come up to the counter with a stack of books because he knows as long as I'm with Dad, I can get whatever I want. <laughs> he'll, he'll say, Dad, you know that new Marvel, he, he knows I like Marvel movies. He said, you know that new Marvel movie is out. Let's go hang out at the show. He ain't asked me for nothing. He just said, Dad, let's go hang out. Why? Because as long as he's near me, he ain't got to ask for nothing. If he's, if he's with me and we're doing what I love to do, he know I'm going to reach in my pocket and take care of everything that needs to take, be taken care of. Why? Because he's winged his soul. <laughs> Not to be anxious and asking dad for 20 when I need a 50. He's winged his soul, not just to throw out casually, well, Dad, I got this going on or whatever. He's come to the place, he said, Dad, let's hang out. Let's hang out where you like to hang out, and he knows that whatever he wants. Now, if as wicked as I am, if I'll treat my children like that, how much more would your heavenly Father do for you if you learn to just get near him if you'll learn just to seek his kingdom first, then all this other stuff, that'll be added unto you. If your obsession will be that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, then all these other things. If he didn't spare his own son, how will he not along with him give us everything else that we need? Is your soul winged yet? Are you still fussy? Because your church isn't growing like they, you, you went to the little conference, whatever the conference was, and you saw the speaker said that, yeah, when I organized my church 10 years ago, we had 10 people. Now we got 10,000. 
And so your soul is fussy because you started out with 20 and now you got 18. How about this? Why don't you level off your heart? Why don't you lower your eyes? Why don't you calm your spirit and be satisfied with intimacy with him and let him give you whatever you need in due season? The psalmist says, my heart's posture is the issue but my soul's composure is what I'm, I'm working on. My soul's composure because I've learned how to wean myself off of the things that I thought were essential or things that I've become excessively fond of. And now I'm satisfied to be in Barnes and Noble with daddy. Satisfied to go to the show with the one I love. But notice something here. The psalmist moves from personal confidence to trying to get a communal commitment. Verse 3, he says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. My heart's posture is level, my soul's composure is calm, but it's my people's commitment that I'm concerned about. And this, is, this is important, brothers. I've, I want to show my hand. I'm trying to say to you as men, and specifically as men of God, that you, you got to get your soul's music right because people are taking their cues from you. And if you're noisy on the inside, they'll be noisy in their lives. If you can't calm your own soul, you can't comfort theirs. If you are fussy down in your middle, discontent, always complaining, maybe you do it in a sanctified way, but you're, you're not really modeling the contentment that is ours in Christ. It will impact your people. David said, oh, Israel, I've learned something, and I want my people to have this commitment. Listen to what he says. Our hope, pardon me, oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This idea of hope is not wishful thinking. It's a confident expectation. It's like in the previous psalm, Psalm 130, it's like what he says, a watchman who waits for the morning knows the morning is coming and he's anticipating the breaking of day. The psalmist here, David, is saying that as the people of God, we've got to learn how to put our, ex our collective expectation in him. Now, this is interesting given that David was one of the greatest kings of Israel. He's the one that God says was a man after his own heart. But David says, I've had to learn how to trust in him, and so do you. David is calling the people of God in his day, and by extension is calling us to this life of humility, this life of learning how to put it in God's hand. And notice, he says, we need to do it permanently, perpetually. It needs to be a pattern of our lives. Hope in the Lord from this time forth, that is now, but you need to do it permanently and perpetually as a pattern of your life. Why? Because our heart's posture has a tendency to shift. See, humility isn't a virtue that you just sort of tack down and it's tacked down forever. Because noise from the outside is always trying to get on the inside. And if you're not careful, your heart will slowly begin to rise. Your, your heart will be lifted up. Your eyes will be haughty as you look out and compare yourself with other people. 
But the psalmist is helping us by pointing out that we have a permanent and perpetual pattern to follow, and that is to anxiously anticipate what God is going to do. The idea here is that we've learned how to turn certain things over to God because we recognize collectively that we can't handle it, and so we put our hope in him. You remember, and Corey Tin Boom talked about it in her book, uh, where when she was 10 years old, she was on a train with her father going from Amsterdam to Harlem. She happened to be reading a poem in a book that she was looking at, and the poem had the phrase in it, sex sin. So she asked her father, what is sex sin? Her father turned to her because he had a relationship with her where he was prone to answer her questions. He just looked at her, and then finally he reached up to where their suitcase was and put it down on the floor and said, "Uh, dear child, uh, can you pick that up and carry it as we get ready to get off the train? She tried, but it was packed with stuff, and she was too small. She couldn't lift the suitcase. And so her father said this. He said, some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you're older and stronger, you'll be able to bear it. But for now, trust me to carry it for you. And she said, I was not only satisfied with that answer, I was at peace with it. Because I knew there was an answer, but for now I was content to leave it in my father's hands. Brothers, the truth of the matter is there are some things in your life and my life that are too heavy for us to carry, and we've got to learn how to put our hope in the fact, our anticipation in the fact that one day, it won't be long, that we'll understand it better by and by. That I can't grasp it right now. I can't deal with it right now. But my hope is in him. My, my anticipation is in his faithfulness and the fact that one day he'll make it clear. I experienced this ex- essentially when I was uh, leaving college at University of Illinois. I was traveling from Champaign, Illinois to Kankakee, Illinois, and I had packed up all that I owned in a little U-Haul trailer behind this little car that my father bought me. It was a Dodge Horizon. Anybody that knows anything about cars, it had a little tin engine in it, and it was always overheating. And so I got halfway home, and the car overheated. I had to pull over to the side, and I didn't know what I was going to do. By God's grace, a a patrolman, a, a, uh, a state policeman came by and he saw my dilemma. He saw the smoke coming up from my little radiator. He said, he looked at the situation. He said, okay, now, he said, where are you, where are you going? I said, I'm, I'm trying to get to my daddy's house. He said, well, what do you have in this trailer? I said, well, just stuff from my apartment back uh, in college. He says to me, and I'll never forget this, he says, is there anything in this trailer that your daddy doesn't have where you going? I said, no, matter of fact, he got better stuff. (laughs) He said, well, you ain't gonna make it to your daddy's house with this. And if your daddy got something better, why don't you unhitch this trailer and get on to your daddy's house? That's what I did. I unhitched that trailer. <laughs> I put some cooling in there, and I made it to my father's house. Why? Because my hope was in what I knew was lying ahead of me, and I knew that daddy had much better waiting for me than what I was carrying behind me. Now, I brought it out because some of us, brother preachers, let me talk to the pastors for just a second, Some of us are carrying some stuff that if we don't let it go, our heart's posture is going to be one of heart attack. 
stroke, and or addiction because you're hanging on to stuff that God didn't intend for you to hang on to because it's too heavy for you. It's too marvelous. It's beyond your ken. I want to challenge you to put your hope in him, put your anticipation in his faithfulness, and calm your spirit down. Well, if this is soul music, I'd like to point out one last thing. This isn't the only psalm that David wrote that has proven to be great soul music. He wrote another psalm, Psalm 31. In that psalm, he talks about the father. And as a matter of fact, it's reported that young children learned that psalm, Psalm 31, particularly this line that they would sing before they went to bed that said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's great music. How do I know it's great music? Because I know a greater son of David who when he was in the midst of the most excruciating pain that anyone could bear, as he was procuring for us our eternal salvation, as he was fulfilling every promise that God had made about one who would be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace would be upon him, as he got ready to do what no one else could do, and that is redeem and rescue us. He said, Father, listen, he had some soul music on the inside. He cited Psalm 31, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And there he gave up the ghost. There he died until death itself died. There he died until the saints of old were vomited up out of the graves. There he died until the sun refused to shine. But he didn't stay dead because quiet dependence on God is the safest way home. He committed his spirit into God's hand, but early on that third day morning, he got up with all power in his hand. And now we can put our hope in him and we can sing like the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other hope, all other ground is sinking sand. Soul music is music that will help you to quietly depend on God when all else is going haywire around you because quiet dependence on him is the safest way home. Horatio Spafford understood that. You remember that Chicago lawyer back in 1873 as he was trying to conduct some business in England and sent his family on ahead of him, his wife and four children. And unfortunately, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the ship sank. His wife alone survived. She sent a telegram to him back in New York that said, saved alone, what shall I do? He immediately booked passage to England. And when he got to the place where the captain said, this is most likely where the ship went down, he penned these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. What about my sin? Well, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross. Now I bear it no more. <laughs> praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Soul music is what we need right now. And I'm asking you to bow your heads with me for just a second and get quiet before the Lord.
calm down the noise in your heart and mind. I'm getting ready to pray. But ask the Lord to show you where you've been noisy on the inside and where you need to turn it over to him to let go and to let him handle what you cannot handle for yourself. So, Father, we bow in your presence acknowledging that our hearts have been lifted up. Our eyes have been haughty. We have been occupied with things too great for us. We ask that you would forgive us. We're asking that like a winged child that you would calm down our souls and help us to be satisfied with your nearness, satisfied with intimacy with you. I pray, Father, for that pastor here that has been struggling, doesn't know what to do next. I pray, Father, for that young man who has been wrestling with pornography. I pray for that husband who feels like giving up. May our hope be in you this time and forevermore. Help us to turn to you in every matter. Help us to cast our burdens upon you because you care for us and you will sustain us. I pray even for our brother, uh, Pastor McKeever, right now, that you would help him, even he and his family, even in this hour, to put their hope in you and to find the calmness of spirit that only comes when we cast our burdens upon you. So help us now, because you said if we come to you when we're laboring, when we're heavy laden, that we'd find rest for our souls, that if we take your yoke upon us, and learn of you, we'd find you, your yoke is easy, your burden is light, and we'll find rest for our souls. So help us today to find that. In Jesus' name, amen.